Hello and welcome. Thank you so much for joining us tonight on Jackman Radio. We're here launching a very exciting new series in conjunction with the 2020 New Hampshire primary. We're going to be sitting down with as many Democratic candidates as possible, talking to them about their campaign, their platform, and why they think they're the best choice to beat Donald Trump in the 2020 general election. Our first time with this segment called Politics and Pints is with a new candidate who's never run for office before, a newcomer to politics, Mr. Andrew Yang. Andrew, how are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. So how's the campaign going? The campaign is going phenomenally well. I was just included in a national poll for the first time, and I'm tied with people like Kirsten Gillibrand and Julian Castro. And here in New Hampshire, the crowds are just getting bigger and bigger. Now, here's our message about the fact that our economy is being transformed forever by technology is getting out there. And our solution, which is that every American adult should receive $1,000 a month starting at age 18, is very, very appealing to people as they realize what that would mean for them and their families. Right, and that's kind of one of the things that you're going to be using to set you apart from the other candidates and what is going to probably be a crowded field of at least 15 to 20 Democrats. This idea of a universal basic income, or as you call it, a freedom dividend. Explain that a little bit to us. Well, if you look into our history, you find that the freedom dividend is a very deeply American idea. Where Thomas Paine was for it at the founding of the country, he called it the citizen's dividend. And then decades later, Martin Luther King was for it, Milton Friedman and a thousand economists signed a letter saying this would be great for the economy and society. And it passed the House of Representatives twice under Richard Nixon. And then 11 years later, one state passed a dividend where everyone in that state now gets between one and $2,000 a year, no questions asked. That state's Alaska, where now they fund it with oil money. And what I'm saying to Americans is the oil of the 21st century is technology. And what we, they do for Alaska, we can do for people here in New Hampshire and around the country. Absolutely. And uh, you were on uh, Sam Harris's Waking Up podcast, I think, last year or somewhat recently. Yeah. And uh, you had a quote uh, that said, the reason why Trump is our president today is because we automated away 4 million manufacturing jobs in the swing states. Do you want to maybe elaborate on that and, and, where, and tell us where you think that trend is heading? Sure. So uh, I started an organization called Venture for America that helped create several thousand jobs in the Midwest and the South. And I became convinced and the data confirmed it that the reason why Trump won in 2016 is that we automated away 4 million manufacturing jobs in Ohio, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Missouri, Iowa, all swing states that he won. And my friends in Silicon Valley know that what we did to manufacturing jobs, we're now going to do to retail jobs, call center jobs, fast food jobs, and most disastrously, truck driving and uh, taxi driving jobs in the next number of years. We're in the third inning of the greatest economic and technological transformation in the history of our country. And the third inning brought us Donald Trump. All of the media explanations are ignoring the facts on the ground. And this isn't just like, you know, like a people picturing like Arnold as a robot. This is like software and self-checkout and, and, you know, items like that. Yeah, that's exactly right. Where if you look around New Hampshire, or you look around the country, 30% of Main Street stores and malls are closing. And you don't think of that as robots and AI. Right. But the reason why they're closing is that Amazon is sucking up another $20 billion in business every year. And if you go to an Amazon warehouse or fulfillment center, that place is wall-to-wall -wall robots. And Amazon is investing billions of dollars in artificial intelligence. So it's not like RoboCop's going to start walking down the street. And then until then, then everyone's like, oh, no problem. I mean, the robots are with us. They're just not um, in our day-to-day -day, uh, line of sight. It's not like an iRobot scenario with Will Smith where they, they become you know, self-actualizing and... Yeah, and that, take over. That's right. And there, there are some misconceptions about this. For example, AI, artificial intelligence, we are years and years away from what's called 
um, artificial general intelligence where they can walk and talk and seem like they're sentient beings. Yeah. Um, but we are very, very close to AI that can do the work of call center workers and bookkeepers and accountants uh, and on and on. So what is it about your background? I mean, obviously when Trump ran in 2016, he pitched himself as this outsider, um, a business guy, savvy on business, not being entrenched in the system, which obviously you're not. Um, what is it about you coming from a business background that makes you so appealing and makes you believe that you should be the next president? Well, some of my supporters have taken to saying the opposite of Donald Trump is an Asian man who likes math. <laughs> and so Donald Trump became president because he diagnosed correctly a lot of the problems, but his solutions are unfortunately totally backwards. His solutions are build a wall, turn back the clock, bring the jobs back. And what I'm saying is we have to move the clock forwards. We have to accelerate both our economy and society and broaden our definitions of both work and value. We have to treat ourselves like the owners and uh, shareholders of this great country. And so when you talk about my background to tackle Donald Trump, uh, I'm focused on trying to solve the problems that got him elected. And voters can sense that. Uh, I've had many people who come up to me and say, I voted for Donald Trump and I'm gonna vote for you because you're talking about the same problems and you really wanna solve them. Yeah, and you recently rode shotgun with a truck driver, or several truck drivers, and they're kind of at the heart and soul of what you're talking about with automation. Uh, because if they lose their job when they're 45 or 50 or 60, they're not being trained to do something else. Yeah, I was with a trucker in Iowa this past weekend, and if you look at the reality of truck driving, there are three and a half million truckers in this country. It's the most common job in 29 states. Average trucker is a 49-year-old man with a high school education making about $50,000 a year. So if you displace, let's call it even a fraction of these truckers, let's say half a million of them, and then we have these fantasies that we're gonna retrain uh, people to do software engineering or whatever like the, the made up uh, new job's going to be, when in reality, these truckers did not like school 30 years ago, um, and they're not excited to get trained for some job that might not even exist. The effectiveness rate of government-funded retraining programs, according to independent studies, is between zero and 15%. So this is a made up solution that politicians irresponsibly are spreading around. I looked at the real numbers of what happened to the manufacturing workers in the Midwest when they lost their jobs. About half of them never worked again, they left the workforce, and of that half, about half filed for disability. So we have these, um, these lazy, irresponsible images where it's like everyone's gonna get retrained for some new job, but the reality on the ground is very, very different. And that's exactly what's gonna happen to the truckers. That's why I'm spending time with them to get a sense of both their working lives now and what the future may hold. And I'm sure, obviously, this is a big question to you and everyone I've told about your campaign to um, and the universal basic income. Where's the money gonna come from? You know, what kind of taxes are gonna be in place? Who's gonna be holding the water for coming up with the money for a freedom dividend? Yeah, so the, the trap the American people uh, are in right now is that um, a handful of companies are going to be the big winners from all this new technology. We're talking about Amazon, Google, Facebook, Uber, like the biggest tech companies in the world. And those companies are great at just not paying a whole lot of taxes. Amazon's move will say, didn't make any money this quarter, no taxes. Google will say, it all went through Ireland, nothing here in the US. And so we're going to be looking around being like, where's the money going? Where's the money going? As the value is going to flow right out of places like New Hampshire. Honestly, it's going to go right over to Seattle. It's going to go right, right, over, to the, right over to Silicon Valley. 
So what we need to do is we need to put a new tax in place that actually harnesses the gains from artificial intelligence and autonomous vehicles and uh, big data and, and robots and everything else and puts it in the hands of the American people. And the most effective way to do that is to pass what's called a value-added tax, which is something that every other major economy has already done. And this way, the American people would get a sliver of every Amazon sale, every Google search, every Facebook ad, every robot truck mile, and that's where we get the, the funds. A value-added tax, because our economy is now so vast at $20 trillion, up $5 trillion in the last 12 years, would give us enough to fund a $1,000 dividend for every adult. So can you point to, you say, every other developing or major economy, can you point to one right now on the planet that has been successful and is working right now, that has the value-added tax sure. and a dividend? Um, the entire European Union, uh, Canada, uh, China all have value-added taxes. And then in terms of putting it into effect in a dividend, um, the closest thing are some of the Middle Eastern countries and some of the Nordic countries. But if you look at the Northern European countries in particular, they have very robust social safety nets where people actually do root for automation there because uh, there's uh, an actual retraining um, uh, set of programs that works. I mean, that, that's a very, very different situation in some ways. Um, but the value-added tax has been well-established in many, many parts of the world. And the dividend is in effect right here in the U.S., in Alaska, and in other parts of the world. And I know recently um, you debated with Jeffrey Myron, who is a libertarian economist, Austrian School of Economics. He was an advisor um, to my buddy Gary Johnson, who I worked for last time around. No. <laughs> I mean, Gary sounds a good guy. There are a lot of people I know who support Gary, him. Gary's a good guy. He doesn't know where Aleppo or what Aleppo is, but that's neither here nor there. You know, where, you know what Aleppo is, right? I do know what Aleppo is. Okay. But the only reason I know what Aleppo is is because Gary, yeah, Gary Johnson got high and didn't know what it was. We know we shouldn't yeah. bomb it. You know? Yeah, we shouldn't bomb it. If we don't it. know where it is, we can't bomb it. Right. That should be a rule. But um, <laughs> Can't find it. No bombing. Can't bomb it. Right. Yeah. Well, so Jeffrey Myron obviously is Austrian school. Um, how was that debate? How, how was it going into a room with a lot of libertarians and people of that mindset and pitching a universal basic income? And what kind of response did you get from those type of people? Well, if you look at the footage of that debate, you'll see that me and Jeffrey agreed on most things and that many, many libertarians are for the freedom dividend. In part because Milton Friedman, who's a patron saint of libertarian economists, was for it. He called it a negative income tax. And what libertarians like is economic freedom, is individual autonomy, which the freedom dividend would make possible for more and more Americans. What libertarians don't like is a giant bureaucracy making everyone's decisions for them. And so we can lighten up the bureaucracy and increase economic freedom and autonomy. And the majority of the people at that conference uh, agreed with this vision. And me and Jeffrey, if you look at it again, we, we were aligned on many, many things. Do you think um, businesses would raise the cost of goods and overall prices for services with this? They're like, oh, everyone's getting $1,000 a month. We're just going to raise our prices. That's one, that's one question I, my friend wanted me to ask you. Oh, yeah, of course. I told him about your... your yeah, no, it's, it's a very common question. So if you dig into what's happening with uh, prices and inflation in our economy, most consumer goods where the, the markets are pretty efficient, things are getting cheaper or staying the same price. So this is like media and electronics, uh, food, clothing, uh, automobiles, like they're either getting better and staying the same price um, or they're getting cheaper even in some cases. Now what's going up in price that's driving us all crazy? There are three things, housing, education, and healthcare. Those are the three main uh, areas of inflation in our economy. They're going up and up, but most of the consumer goods staying about the same. So what I tell people is like, look, if everyone in this town in New Hampshire got a thousand bucks a month, and let's say this bar decided to double the cost of their beer. 
like, you know, right now it's three, let's say the next day it's six or seven or eight. Well, it's not like you'd be like, oh, I'm made of money now. I'm going to pay that six or eight dollars. You would say, wait a minute, this, this beer was four dollars yesterday. And then you'd start looking around and be like, is there another bar in this town? Well, I'd probably pay it. It's pretty damn good beer. I mean, let's be honest. <laughs> well, if the beer is worth it. Um, so the, the, the reality is that there's going to be price sensitivity among consumers still. Like you're still going to be looking for a bargain. And there's going to be price competition in every vertical. You would need every firm to simultaneously raise their prices on every comparable good and then have to make it so that no one lowers their price to get everyone's business, um, which is impossible. The reality is that we would keep the vast majority of this money. The causes of inflation, this education and healthcare and housing, are because those markets are dysfunctional for a variety of reasons. And if anything, putting money into our hands helps us manage the crazy inflation in things like healthcare and education. And have you heard the criticism that if you're everyone from 18 to 64 is just going to get a complimentary thousand dollars every month, that's going to play into a culture and an atmosphere of not wanting to work and dependency on government and just becoming lazy and satisfied with, with yeah, not working and earning money. This is the biggest misconception is that somehow the freedom dividend is anti-work. It's pro-work. It would pump $8 billion into the economy here in New Hampshire and would create about 15,000 new jobs here. Because if everyone in this community had a thousand bucks a month, what would you do with it? You'd come to this place and buy more beer. You'd get your car repairs that you've been putting off. You would get tutoring and food for your kids. You know, you might do some home improvement you've been putting off. That money just goes right back into the economy and every business here that has any growth is like, oh, I need to hire a new server, mechanic, um, tutor, and on and on. No one's going to quit their job on a thousand bucks a month. That's below the poverty line in this country. It's $12,770. On the flip side, it will enable more people to do the kind of work that they want to do. And it also helps reward and compensate the, the work that's right now ignored. And one of the examples I use is that my wife is at home with our two sons, one of whom is autistic, and that right now gets valued at zero. And with the Freedom Dividend, that sort of work would actually at least begin uh, to be measured and uh, rewarded in our society. So this isn't anti-work at all. This is actually pro-work, and it broadens the definitions of work. And uh, changing gears a little bit here, you have a, or you're part of a documentary on Netflix uh, that we watched called Generation Startup. Oh yeah, what'd you think? I liked it. I thought it was really cool. It's uh, it's cool to see young people in postgrads um, throwing themselves into like a housing situation where there's no <laughs> pretty, dry, pretty hairy. They're like too. living with cockroaches and there's no. Oh, I was in, I was in that house. Yeah, did you I sleep was there? Like, yeah. One in Detroit. Yeah, I was in that house. <laughs> yeah. I did not sleep there, but I was like, holy cow. Yeah, those guys. Were, those guys were roughing it, man. Yeah, they're they're really good guys. Uh, I was just I just thought to myself, man, their parents are gonna kill me. That's what I thought. Well, it's like summer camp, you know, sink or swim in the deep end. Andrew know? Yang, summer camp on yeah. the eight mile. Yeah. <laughs> it was cool to see that, though. So how, how has that program um, helped those young people? I mean, have you seen since that documentary, have they kept, kept it going and built their businesses? Or Well, it's just like real life, man, where some of them have succeeded and some of them um, have found new things to do. But like, I will say that Venture for America's alums have raised tens of millions of dollars and helped create hundreds, even thousands of jobs around the country, which I couldn't be prouder of. That's awesome. And the thing I'm proudest of is that Venture for America is still thriving and growing, even though I am no longer CEO. And that's one of the highest um, accomplishments of my career is that as an entrepreneur, you create something that then grows without you. Uh, so Venture for America, if you're looking to, to try and uh, get some startup experience uh, around the country and you're you know, coming out of school, like check it out. You're not afraid to rough it. 
a little bit. You have to rough it. It's true. But you <laughs> know, I mean, but but you guys know that uh, um, that stuff can really help prepare you for great things in the future. Oh yeah, yeah. It definitely uh, builds character and, and helps with the realities of business. Where we're trying to take our podcast here to the next level, and this interview with you is our first launch of uh, Politics and Pines. So. Politics and pints. Sky's the limit, man. Look at this, Andrew Yang breaking new ground like Lord, always. And then we're going to look around. Creating jobs where you're not even president yet. Yeah, we're going to create a lot of jobs when we so, start distributing that dividend. That's all that. <laughs> so, Andrew, you're, you're, uh, you're on. Okay, so you win the Democratic nomination. This is hypothetical. Um, I like where you're going. Okay, so you win the Democratic nomination, and it's you and uh, Geotis, God Emperor of the United States, yeah. a.k.a. the Emperor, the King. Megalodon, uh, the Donald, Donald Trump, kahuna. yeah, the big Kahuna. What, what's your first line out of the gate in that debate to Donald Trump, in front of the whole world? You know, I, I'm not someone who tries to prepare zingers. <laughs> but, but will, you know, you're gonna have to though. Yeah. You're gonna have to because he's he's gonna be ready for you. But you're gonna get to the prime. We want to see you on the stage of the primary. Oh, I'm gonna, that's one yeah, of the reasons absolutely. we're doing this because you're. Yeah. Well, I'm gonna be there. Um, so. Yeah, on the way to, to win the nomination, I'm going to just talk, look, we got to solve the problems that got Donald Trump elected and people are suffering. 57% of Americans can't afford an unexpected $500 bill. 78% are living paycheck to paycheck, which we saw the shutdown. You have freaking government employees like going on. And that affected my sister. She works, she's a contractor for the U.S. Marshals. She did not get two paychecks. It was yeah. horrible. Yeah. yeah, it's horrible. It's horrible. There, there it was a, horrible. There was a whole town in Iowa that shut down because uh, they're uh, based upon the Herbert Hoover Museum. And then that shut down, and then no one shows up. Well, <laughs> there's some irony in that, though. Hooverville. He has his uh, own museum. I didn't he know does that. have his own museum. Of course he does. And there's a national park there too that it's also shut down. Museum. Yeah, you can hear that sucking sound. But I heard but, you mention, uh, you know, you would like to preempt Donald, and uh, your nickname would be Comrade Yang. Well, that's what we were guessing. He's going to call me is Comrade Yang because it's sort of uh, a little bit racially tinged, and sort of makes me seem like a socialist, even though I want to say the freedom dividend is just capitalism where income doesn't start at zero. It's good for business, good for consumers. It, it's uh, very much a continuation of, of capitalism. Then when the economy grows, we get some of that money back because of all the new business, and then that generates new tax revenue. So we get back 400 billion in new tax revenue, give or take. And then we save hundreds of billions on things like incarceration and homelessness services and emergency room healthcare. There was a prison guard here in New Hampshire who said to me, we should pay people to stay out of jail because when they wind up in jail, we just spend so much on so much wasteful uh, institutional cost. Uh, and then the last part that's really also beautiful is that if everyone had $1,000 a month, kids would be stronger, healthier, mentally healthier, have higher graduation rates. There was one study that showed that alleviating poverty would increase our GDP by $700 billion by making us more productive, uh, healthier, and mentally healthier. And so there are all these wins. You yes. talk about like mar domestic tranquility. Like the studies show that Lower domestic marriages violence, would, would right. actually be better and, and younger people wouldn't be getting divorced and having as many issues. Not as much, sure, because like what's the number one stressor in a relationship? Are you guys married? Money, money, money. No, I'm not. No, we li actually live together. This is a womb to tomb scenario. <laughs> Twins, if you couldn't tell. I could tell that. No, we're, we're you know, we, uh, we're not married. We're single, ladies. Single. This Look. can't last forever, ladies. You got to get over to wherever they're shooting. If Andrew Yang can be president, I can find a wife. I'm just saying. <laughs> I, I, you know, you guys finding a finding a wife to me is just an inevitability, you know, because like economics, uh, right? Basically. If we get that thousand dollar dividend and we have a job, we look better on the market. We look better on PlentyOfFish.com and and Tinder or Grinder. Yeah, Christian singles. <laughs> well, part part of it really is, like. What is one of the single biggest causes of relationship stress? 
finances. Money. Like, yeah, yeah, like couples argue about that all the time. Friends, that's no, what they say. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah, for sure. So it's going to improve relationships. The other thing is it improves relationships just by like everyone having a thousand bucks a month uh, coming in. Then if you have a partner, that's twenty four thousand. That's a really good foundation. And if one of you works, maybe the other one is like home with the kids. I mean, like uh, this would be a game changer for many, many families. And one of the points uh, that your book, uh, The War on Normal People, discusses is that relationships would be better and perhaps suicide rates would even go down because people suicide are led to destitution totally and, and, and depression. Yeah, I had, to, I had a supporter write me and say that this would have saved his brother's life because his brother took his own life because of financial stresses. I mean, this is very, very real. If you look at what's happening in this country, we are falling apart. We are disintegrating. Our life expectancy has declined for three years yeah. because of a surge in suicides and drug overdoses. Uh, you know, here, here are the things at record lows right now. Marriage rates, childbirth rates, people starting businesses, people moving. Leaving their parents' house. Yeah, yeah. all yes. record lows. Sure. Record highs, suicide, addiction, drug overdoses, depression, like all of those things are at record highs. So we gotta look around and say we are sick and we are falling apart and we need to build a more human-centered economy that actually serves our needs. I mean, what the heck are we serving right now? This like phantom GDP number that's gonna go up and up even as more of us get kicked to the curb. And you know, speaking to that, when I heard you speak a couple weeks ago up in Manchester, you mentioned you have some friends who work for the military industrial complex, as we all do. Everybody knows somebody who works for them. Yes. And they're, they're they, I mean, you could say what you will about it. It's, it's a vapid black hole of waste. So for the UBI, would that tap into some of that and redirect some of that resources towards people? Well, uh, I think it would be immensely helpful and it would help give people better economic options. Um, uh, but we need to start channeling some of the military spending we currently have into infrastructure and things that are going to solve the problems of this era. Yeah, the stuff Trump said he was going to do, but it's like not happening. The fact that we didn't at least get an infrastructure bill out of Trump is crazy to me. The guy literally built stuff. He loves putting his name on things. It's bipartisan. It would have created jobs. It would have solved a problem. And he couldn't we need the wall. We need the, we need the wall. He couldn't even we do that. I mean, it's nuts. Like, this is the biggest no-brainer. Democrats would have been on board with that. It would have been like, we don't care who proposes it. If you want to build... Call it infrastructure. Just call it infrastructure, yeah. and, the, and the Dems would have gotten behind it. And I kid you not, I feel like the reason why he didn't do it was because he... Uh, just thought that not doing it would somehow how, how, like, uh, stick it to someone. Um, so the fact we didn't get infrastructure out of Trump is crazy. I mean, you know, he still has a little bit of time, but it doesn't matter. He's just leaving me more to do. When I'm president, we're going to have the Rebuild America uh, infrastructure fund that goes for over a trillion dollars over a number of years because we're living on investments of decades ago uh, in terms of our highways and bridges, and like we're falling apart. It's, right. it's nuts. There's so many things in this country that we know we can do much, much better. And I know obviously centered around your campaign is the Freedom Dividend. I haven't heard you talk a lot about foreign policy. Where are you foreign policy-wise um, in specifics to our drone program and what we're doing around the world and in the Middle East right now, especially nation building and occupying all these Middle Eastern countries? Yeah, nation building is one way to describe um, what we've been doing. Uh, I think we've gotten ourselves into all these messes because American leaders have deluded themselves into thinking that we could do things that we could not do. And many people have paid the price, our own soldiers, uh, other societies, the fact that we've squandered hundreds of billions of dollars that could have been spent on pretty much... It's money that could have been kept in-house. Yeah. And so what I've been saying to, to people is that our foreign policy reflects our strength at home. We are falling apart at home. 
So now our partnerships and alliances are fraying and people regard us as erratic and unreliable. And so what we have to do is we have to become strong at home and then we'll be much better able to project our values and goals abroad and also rebuild relationships and alliances so that people regard us as uh, someone they can rely on over time. So that's my goal as president. I would certainly be much more restrained and judicious about actual use of force. If we get involved in a situation, we have to know what our goals are, we have to know what our time frame is, and we have to be able to say honestly to our men and women in service, look, we're going to equip you to succeed, and then we're going to take care of you when you get back. Right. Yeah. I mean, imagine if we had that six or seven trillion we spent in Afghanistan and Iraq the last 18, nearly 18 years. You know what you could do with that? You could fund a freedom dividend for quite some time. And one of the things I, I want to say is, look, we have the money. Like, the, there's this strange mentality. It's like, oh, where's the money? Where's the money? We have the money. Our economy is up to 20 trillion dollars, up five trillion in 12 years. It's a matter of priorities. It's just a matter of priorities. And if the majority of citizens in a democracy, let's say, let's declare ourselves a dividend. You don't even need it's like some super majority. You just need 51% of Congress to make this a reality. All right, well, we're down to our last uh, couple minutes here. I want to thank you, Andrew, for joining us. I want to thank Post and Beam Brewing. We have to put this up here. We are partnering with Post and Beam Brewing. I want to give Andrew Yang the floor here for his last pitch to the voters of New Hampshire and everybody. Andrew, why should you be president? Oh. I want to be president to solve the problems that have made Donald Trump president in the first place. So we have to build a new trickle-up economy from ourselves, from our people, and our families, and our communities up. And I have to say to the voters of New Hampshire, you all have an awesome power and historic responsibility. Where most of America is looking around saying, what can I do to change things? And they feel like their vote does not matter because our political system is a set of pipes that are just clogged full of money, hundreds of millions of dollars. And the sad thing is they are right. Their vote does not matter. But if you're here in New Hampshire, then your vote does matter. And if you get behind an economic vision that puts you first, that puts us first, then we can take that to the rest of the country and make it a reality in 2020. Sounds good. All right. Well, ladies and gentlemen, well, thank you for joining us tonight. I'd like to thank Post and Bean Brewing. This is our first Politics and Pint. Andrew Yang, good luck to you, sir. Cheers. Thank you very much. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for watching. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you, Studio Audience. <laughs> All right. <laughs> That's That's right. right.